A few years ago, I came to realize that I had been lying for most of my life in church. Over and over, it was the same lie. I wasn't intending on deceiving anyone. I wasn't even trying to deceive God. It just would happen. Each time, the song leader would stand up and announce song number 438, which was the song in our hymnal. I would begin to sing, and I would tell a lie. Song 438 is titled, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And the lyrics go something like this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then the chorus says, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The reality for me was that for most of my life, I actually wasn't standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I had been building my life on a number of different things. Things like social acceptance. If the right people liked me or I was able to move in the right circles, I felt good about myself. Or I built my life on finding that perfect relationship. The moment I meet the one, everything's going to be okay. Or I would build my life on things like achievement, whether I was in school and playing a sport or as an adult building a career. If I was achieving something and being successful in that endeavor, I felt like my life was good. Little did I know that building my life on things other than Jesus Christ is a pretty faulty foundation. As Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he told us a story about two men who built a house. One of the guys built his house on the foundation of a rock, and the other guy built his house on the foundation of sand. And there's a crucial moment in that story. Both people who had built their house faced a storm. The waters would come, the floods would rise, the winds were beating against their house. And in the moment of that storm, both of those individuals found out the quality and stability of their foundation. The one who built his house on the rock, his house stood firm. The man who built his house on the sand, following the storm, found out that his house was destroyed. You know, we're facing a crisis right now. We're in the middle of what you might call a storm. And some of you may be discovering that in the midst of this storm, you have built your life on something that's not stable. All of those things that I had already mentioned, like social acceptance or achievement, things like finding a good relationship or a perfect spouse, all of those things in our life were meant to be blessings to us from God but they were never designed to be our foundation. And so when storms of life come, it reveals to us the kind of foundation we've built our life upon. In that way, God actually blesses us in the storm. So whether this moment right now for you is actually a storm or not, you will face a storm eventually in your life, and it will show you the foundation on which you have built your entire life. Reminds me how David said in Psalm verse 61, 1 through 3, when he said it this way, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. 
when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. You know, there's a foundation that you and I can build our life upon that the Bible tells us about that has the ability to hold or withstand every storm that we face. It's the only foundation that actually has the ability to carry us through this life and on into eternity. Here's how Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 1, he said it this way. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. You see, Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation on which we should build our life. Okay, that's great news then. What is the gospel? In Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives us a summary of the gospel in verses 3 through 5 that can be so helpful for us to make sense of what the gospel really is. You know, defining the gospel is a little bit of a difficult task. Sort of like most things with God, it's beyond our full comprehension. But what's so great about the gospel is that it's so simple, a child can know it. Jesus loves me, this I know. And yet it's so deep and rich and complex that angels long to look into it and understand it deeper. So in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, let me read this for you and show you what the gospel really is. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me show with you from this passage three movements of what the gospel is and how it can be the most stable foundation on which you and I can build our lives. Number one, the gospel, first of all, is historical. The gospel is not just a theory, nor is it just a random philosophy or worldview or religion. The gospel is actually, what it means is good news. It is something that happened historically in this world. And what's really beautiful about this passage is that Paul tells us about the historical elements of the gospel. The first one is this, that the gospel was according to the will of God. It was in God's mind, His heart, His plans from all eternity. The gospel was the idea of God, the choice of God before this world ever existed. Now, here's why that matters. First of all, it matters because it tells you about the character of who God is. It was God's choice. It was God's will. It was God's desire to save us in Jesus Christ. That tells us the kind of quality that He is, that He cares about us, that it was His own will and decision to love us. He didn't just react when we begged Him enough and save us. He didn't go, oh, okay, now you've bothered me enough, I'll give in to you. It was His will, His character, His decision to say, I will do what you need me to do, whether you know it or not. 
It's also important because it tells us about the love of God. Because the gospel was in the mind of God before this world ever existed, it reminds us that God's love for us is His choice, and it stands independent of anything else. You see, most of us actually live like love is dependent. Most of us think that when we do good, we receive love. When we do bad, we lose love. And when we live that way, as if love is dependent upon us, we live nervous and fearful, defensive and self-justifying. We lose peace and have no joy. Knowing that the gospel was the plan of God before you were ever created tells you that God loved you before you did anything good or anything bad. So the gospel is historical because it was the will of God, but it also it's historical because it was the work of Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ. That man came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, fully obedient to the commands of God. He died the death that a sinner deserves on a Roman cross, went into the tomb, and existed in the state that you and I will exist when we die, and on that Sunday morning, defeated our greatest enemy of death and resurrected back to life, and 40 days later ascended to be with the Father again for all eternity. This is what makes the gospel news and not advice. Sure, the gospel has good advice and good commands and things we should follow, but at its very core, the gospel is news about what Jesus has done for us that you and I must believe. So first of all, the gospel is historical, and that's crucial that you and I accept that and understand it. The second thing about the gospel that's really important is that it's personal. It touches us individually. Do you notice in our passage where Paul said at the very beginning, grace to you and peace. The gospel is personal because it is God's plan to deal with our problem of sin for all eternity. Our sin brought us two major problems. As you look through the scriptures, you see you can really condense it down to two big problems we have because of sin. One is external. When we disobey God, we are guilty before Him. We've done wrong. We have disobeyed Him. He has made us. He has told us how to live. And we have disobeyed Him. And that makes us eternally guilty before Him. The second problem we have is internal. And that is the problem of shame. When we do something disobedient to what we were supposed to do, we not only have guilt externally before God, but we also have shame internally to ourselves. We know we haven't lived up to being the people that we're supposed to be. Adam and Eve, we see them the moment that they sin in the Garden of Eden, they begin to hide. They hide from God. They hide from each other. They even hide from themselves when they lie to God about what's going on. You see, shame is the loss of righteousness, that ability for us to stand before God and not be embarrassed about who we are or have anything to hide. And in the Garden of Eden, not only were Adam and Eve guilty of God, breaking God's commands, they have become ashamed of who they are. So in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he did for us solves both those problems. You see, Paul lists them here. He says, you have grace and peace. We have grace for our guilt. 
Externally, we were wrong before God, and Jesus paid the price for us on the cross. And now we have grace to find forgiveness. But we also have peace for our shame. You see, the cross is the greatest demonstration of God's love for you. It shows you how far He'll go for you. And at the cross, the justice of God punishing sin combined with the mercy of God, the love to sinners. And when you see what happened at the cross, you can have grace when you're guilty and you can have peace when you're ashamed. See, the Bible also tells us that the gospel is not just an anesthetic that takes away our pain. It's also an antibiotic that kills what is hurting us. Paul here in Galatians chapter 1 also says that we have grace for our guilt, peace for our shame. But did you notice the third part? He says we have the power to overcome the evil in our present age. Meaning the gospel doesn't just solve our past problems. It is the power to solve our present challenges as we face the challenge of wanting to sin today. How does it do that? Well, two things, really simple. One, when you believe the gospel that your sin has truly been paid for legally by Jesus Christ before God, you now have the confidence to confess all your sin. John would say it this way in 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins before Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. See, what John is saying is that when we know what Jesus has done for us and trust that it worked, we won't have any fear to go to the Father and say, God, I've sinned again, and tell Him about those sins because we believe those sins have been paid for. Because God is faithful to His Word, I'll forgive you, and He is just. He has already punished that sin. So you and I can have confidence to go to God and confess. And as we do that, He says that He'll forgive us, and cleanse us, wash us from the desire of that sin. Later on in chapter 2, John would say it this way, as you and I think about, meditate on, and get close to the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, he said in 1 John 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, you know, the things of sin, he says the diagnosis is this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John's trying to tell us that when you still love the world and find yourself drawn to sin and wanting to participate in sin, what he's saying is that you don't yet have enough of God's love filling you up. You see, the more we receive and accept the love of God, the less we will love sin. You don't expel sin from your life by just creating more rules, you don't expel sin from your life by just beating yourself up emotionally or psychologically. You don't expel sin from your life other than by the power of the love of Jesus Christ at the cross. So, the gospel is historical. The gospel is personal. The gospel is relational. It's relational. You notice in this passage, Paul speaks about relationships. He says, first of all, that God is our Father. You see, outside of Jesus Christ, God is a lot of things. He is our creator. He is our sustainer of life. God is our judge. 
But inside of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to the relationship of God being our Father. That means that Jesus is our brother. And all of those people who have faith in Jesus Christ as well become our family members. You see, this defines how you and I are supposed to now interact with God. Yes, we need to revere Him as Creator, respect Him as Judge, but the beautiful thing that the Gospel does for us is it allows us to hug Him like He's our Father. And then we look around and see other believers and see them not just as other independent people who have been saved, but as family members that we're called to take care of. The Gospel defines our relationships now. God is our Father and other believers as our siblings. That's not the only relationship that's changed. Paul says here that God is our Father, but Jesus is also our Lord. You know, Jesus really can't actually save you until you let Him be the Lord of your life. Jesus didn't come to earth just to let you off the hook, to give you a divine redo and then go back to heaven. No, Jesus came to restore Genesis 1 and 2 order where God is sovereign and we are submissive. But he's done this in a way that proves to us that he is the most trusting Lord that we could ever serve. He is the one that we should follow. And when you come to the gospel and learn what it is, you learn that Jesus deserves to be submitted to. He didn't come just to give independently save different people. He came to establish a kingdom where He rules and we follow. And so Jesus cannot be your Savior until He's your Lord because the seed of all sin is us ruling and running our own lives. The gospel preached by Jesus is a gospel of a kingdom that we must become a part of. Okay, so how do you build your life on the gospel? Number one, You've got to consider it. You've got to think about it. You've got to study it. You've got to ask the hard questions. Is this real? Is this true? Did this happen? You know, the Bible and Jesus, they don't run away from those hard questions. They invite you into the challenging ones to look into the claims about who Jesus is and what he does for you. But I want to caution you not to ask the question, do I like it? Because our preference of Jesus really doesn't matter. The real question is, is he who he said he was? So number one, you got to consider it and seriously think about it so you can build your life on truth. Number two, when you consider it, you then have to accept it. That means believing it to the point that your life actually changes. Believing what he has said about life and what's true about him and all the way to the point where it drives out your false beliefs. And it begins to demand not just your mental agreement, but your obedience to what he has said. So you consider it, you accept it, and finally you've got to obey it. You have been called by Jesus Christ to die to your old way of living. Your old way of living doesn't work. It leaves you frustrated and angry, bitter and jealous and full of envy. Our old way of living is broken and he calls you to die to that old way of living and to live for Him. Obedience to the gospel means that I confess to Him. I believe that You are Lord and Savior. It means that I repent 
of living my own way and turn back towards him. And the beautiful culmination of all that is found when you are baptized in water into Jesus Christ, where you tell the world and you tell God, I want to die to my old self in this water. And when I come back up, I am declaring that I am raised a new person and Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. And practically what that means after this happens and we begin to walk with Him is that we become people who are so grateful for what He's done for us that we are willing to share that with other people. It means that we're patient and forgiving. We let go of grudges. It means that we walk with people and are compassionate and kind. It means that we confess when we're wrong. It means that we're so willing to live a humble, obedient life because of gratitude for what He's done for us. And when you link up with that and build your life on this, the promise of Jesus is that you will have joy and peace, love and acceptance that is greater than anything this world can provide. If you are not a Christian, this situation in the world right now can't, doesn't stop you from becoming one. Contact us. Get a hold of us. We will put you in touch with the right person if you don't live in our area. And if you do, we will gladly help you walk into understanding what it means to be a Christian and then how to live as one. If you are a Christian and you've been struggling, maybe you've been building your life on something else, today is the day, now is the time to leave those things and start building your life on Jesus. It's a long and beautiful journey, and we're here to walk with you through it.